welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences with me, Nipin Anand. This podcast series is meant to bring you different perspectives and concepts in safety. The idea really is to create space for thinking and reflection, not to reinforce any grand theory or our prior knowledge on a subject. The aim is to learn and grow, not to remain stagnant. And of course, as I keep saying, there is no reason for you to believe me or any so-called expert, but keep an open mind and be prepared to challenge your beliefs if you truly want to learn more than what you knew yesterday. Today's podcast is an extension of a previous podcast that I did with Professor Andrew Hopkins. Andrew discussed at length how structure sets the tone of the culture within the organization and that every decision, every action is influenced by how, how performance is understood, measured, incentivized and penalized by the leaders within the organization. Today, in this podcast, I will take this concept even further with Jilsa Montero, who happens to not just be a process safety specialist in one of the leading oil and energy companies in the world, but also someone who has understudied Professor Andrew Hopkins. Jilsa asked the question, how organization structure influences operational safety, which is more grounded in practice, not least because of her background and research interests. Jilsa asks a range of questions in the podcast and warns us about the dangers of decentralizing safety, which means allowing business units within the corporate body to make their own decisions about safety and technical excellence without much interference from the centrally located headquarters of the organization. The questions he asks are, what is centralized and decentralized decision making? The dangers of a decentralized structure how do you design the organization to strengthen operational safety? How do you balance between a central and decentralized unit when it comes to independent approach to operational safety? And what happens when a centralized structure fails? She also talks about the collaborative work between engineers and managers the interdisciplinary approach that we need to advance on the comprehension of organizational factors. I hope you will enjoy this session. So Jilsa, first of all, thank you very much for joining and accommodating. Professor Andrew Hopkins speaks very highly of you, but I would like to know a little bit from you about yourself. I'm a chemical engineer and I have been working with risk analysis and process safety in the oil and gas industry for nearly 18 years. And during this period of time, Nipin, I had the chance to, to work in many different departments in the company I worked for. So at the beginning, I worked very close to operational teams of offshore production platforms then I had a chance to join the basic engineering design team working in projects for both the upstream and downstream segments of the company. And finally, I got a position in the process safety corporate department, which is where I am now working as a process safety specialist. And during this whole experience, I could see problems and issues and decision-making processes from different perspectives. 
And I could notice how the organizational structure of the company influenced on the way we communicated things among departments or didn't communicate, on the way we made our decisions, and in the end, on the way we were managing the risks of major accidents of our process facilities. And I think I, I have always been passionate about understanding how organizations work. And in 2017, I was a PhD student and I had to decide the main topic to be addressed in my, in my PhD thesis, my main research question. And then I thought, oh, this is the opportunity I have to explore this issue and develop a better comprehension, not only about its structures, but about how institutional arrangements that I could see in the company I was working for influenced on the way we behave in the company. And by institutional arrangements, Nipping, I think this is a very uh, important concept. Structure is one of them, but by institutional arrangements, I mean the arrangements that are established by the leaders that exist independently from us, the individuals who make up the organization, but that highly influence on the way we do things in the company. So I'm talking about the structures, bonus systems, indicators, all these organizational factors. And then I decided that I, I needed expertise and knowledge from human and social science. I was making my PhD in the nuclear engineering department of the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. But then I realized that if I really wanted to advance my comprehension on these topics, I needed knowledge and expertise from other areas. And then I decided to write an email to Professor Andrew Hopkins. He had been in the company I worked for a couple of years before that, giving some lectures and talks with, to the managers. And I explained to him my ideas. And, and what a coincidence, Nipping. He was writing a book about this topic. <laughs> and the book was published uh, two years ago, Organizing for Safety. And, and you also had a podcast with him about this book. It, it was an excellent podcast. So, so we could arrange uh, things. And then I stayed for just one year in the School of Sociology at the Australian National University working with him. We published two papers in safety science. And, and it was an amazing learning experience, uh, Nipping. Completely changed my, my worldview, I can tell you. And I could realize how engineers and sociologists think differently, how we address a problem in different ways. So if you present a problem to an engineer, he's going to open up a notebook, make some calculations, and provide you with an answer as fast as he or she can in the most effective way. If you present a problem to a sociologist, they are obsessed by the research question. So they are going to address, what is the question I have to answer? What is the problem I have? Is this the best question to address this problem? So I think that this makes the whole difference. After this whole learning journey I had, I think that we, 
we need to bring this kind of expertise to our major hazard companies. I think that just with this interdisciplinary approach, we will be capable of advancing our knowledge on organizational factors and how they are influenced the way we do things in a company. I discovered that you have a PhD in social sciences, so please let me know a little bit of your experience. Just I must say, it's such an honor to know you, but also in the way you introduced yourself, it feels like so much passion in what you do. It's so easy to sense that passion. You believe in something and that comes across uh, so quickly, even from such a long distance. And I think there is something in common here. I have been living in the UK for the last 15 years. So my journey uh, started off with uh, uh, being a ship mariner. I used to work on ships for 11 years. And then I came to the UK to do a master's in economics and ended up doing a PhD in social sciences but fell in love with anthropology, cultural anthropology. I'm intrigued by this whole idea of how much we are missing if we don't understand uh, how social sciences work, you know, how much we are missing in our lives. And somebody said to me when I was doing my PhD that social sciences is nothing but general knowledge well-researched. What you might come up with as the conclusion of your PhD, when you turn around and tell people, they'll say, what's the big deal? I know that already. But I think It's the critical thinking, the rigor, the reasoning, the understanding of connecting the macro with the micro, uh, how the small things connect with the the big problems in the world. This is a unique strength that you get when you do a PhD. But I envy you that you had the, the opportunity to do a PhD with one of the most famous social scientists, not just in in accident hazards, but but also in general, somebody who has such a unique ability to present such complex problems in such simple, simple words. It was an amazing learning experience, I can tell you. And I also get the opportunity uh, to get to know other sociologists. And, and I was completely out of my comfort zone, Nipping. I was the only engineer in the School of Sociology in a different country with a different culture. And I think that it was uh, really good because I was completely open to, to new ideas and new ways of thinking. So it helped me a lot. And for this podcast, I really would like to, to discuss with you and to address this topic of how organizational structures impact operational safety. And, and my main argument here is that a decentralized structure may undermine operational safety. And by operational safety, I I mean the safety branch that focuses on the prevention, the mitigation, and the response to major accidents. It's it's what we call in the oil and gas industry as process safety. And, And to do that, in fact, I prepared a sequence of questions. I think that this will help us to follow a a line of reasoning to address this topic, this argument that I'm posing here. So uh, the first question is, what do I mean by a decentralized structure? I think that it's important to explain that. And after that, what are the dangers of a decentralized structure? And after that, if we agree that we need a safety function in our company that is more centralized and independent from business pressures. Okay, but 
the third question, how to design the organization in order to strengthen the safety function? And finally, uh, what can make this, this safety function, this more centralized and independent function fail? What are the aspects that can lead to this structure fail? And then, Nipping, if we have time for that, I think it's important to have a final message. I, I was thinking about the, this conversation here, and then I thought it's important in the end to tell people that there is no one-fits-all solution. And I really enjoy the idea of every time you say embracing different ideas, and because it, I'm going to provide some food for thought but structures, they don't exist in isolation. There are other aspects that must be put together with the structure in order for the whole package to work in an independent way. So I think that if we have time in the end, it's to, to have this final message. And if you allow me to proceed, I, I can try to answer my first question. What do I mean, what do I mean by a decentralized structure? And, and by decentralization, I mean the, the dispersion of decision-making autonomy within the company. So if you think about decisions, about how we manage risks of major accidents, we say that in a decentralized company, these decisions will be made as far as possible at the local site, at the process facility, at the business unit level, rather than at the corporate department. So in other words, decisions are transferred to this business units and the business unit manager comes to possess all the authority for schedules, productions, cost reductions and safety. And, and of course that this manager has a group of safety professionals that are directly subordinated to him to provide input and evaluate the risks and provide input for, for his or her final uh, decision. And, and this whole arrangement, it presents many advantages. If you think that resolving matters at lower levels, it's more time efficient. So since decisions don't need to be pushed up the hierarchy of the company, uh, decisions are faster. And also, this kind of arrangement provides business units with room for innovation, and they can look for solutions and services uh, providers who are geographically located next to the process facilities, which makes everything easier. So uh, in terms of commercial or financial considerations, there are there are a lot of advantages, but when, then when you think about safety, I think that there is another picture. There are some disadvantages that we need to think about. And, and then I can proceed to my second question. So what are the dangers of this decentralized arrangement? And, and I think that we need to, to make a picture in our minds uh, about this decentralized organization I'm telling here. So you can think about many different business units that can be viewed as individual companies linked together by a corporate center that establishes some general safety guidelines, safety criteria, safety goals, 
and technical requirements, technical standards that will then be deployed in the standards and procedures of each one of these business units. And so suppose you have in this arrangement a group of experts who are in charge of developing and maintaining the technical standards that the business unit has to follow. But then you can think about a situation in which the business unit manager wants to not follow, to deviate from a technical requirement. In a decentralized organization, usually this business unit manager has the authority to grant a waiver to a technical requirement, sometimes not even consulting the experts who have developed, who had developed the, the technical standard in the first place. Of course, that he has a group of safety experts who will assess the risks of not following that requirement to, to provide input for this final decision. But this arrangement has some disadvantages. So first of all, this business unit group may lack the expertise and knowledge that is required for an effective risk evaluation. And maybe because they are directly subordinated to this business unit manager, who probably has some strong reason to not follow that requirement, this put a lot of pressure over the shoulders of this technical team. So they may lack the independence that is required to perform an effective risk analysis. And, and we know, Nick, there are many social psychological processes, mechanisms that can occur in a group that is under a lot of pressure having to support a decision like that. So mechanisms such as confirmation bias, group thinking, and so on. So this is the kind of arrangement that favors the occurrence of these mechanisms and favors the occurrence of fluid rationales that will support bad decisions in the end. So the tension between safety and production in an arrangement like that may end up being not uh, effectively managed. So a right balance may not be achieved. And, and this is the kind of context snipping that when a safety issue is raised, no one wants to come to the conclusion that the associated risks are within that red portion of the risk matrix. Do you know what I mean? So arguments are posed in order to justify that the risks can be accepted in order not to compromise the long-term production goals. So in the end, it seems to me that sometimes the risk analysis process is not a process to provide critical thinking and to really think about the whole situation to, to fully inform a decision. It seems to me that sometimes the risk analysis process is a process to validate a decision that has already been made. So I don't know if you have experienced such a situation, if you want to share with me some experience and then we can continue. Yeah, fascinating, you say. Um, not one, but many situations like that where the purpose of the risk assessment is basically to, to, to support the decision, not to question the decision, not to question the, the robustness of, of the process, but to reinforce what, you know, I call it uh, beating the monkey to, to get the desired answer. 
So you keep beating the monkey until you get the desired answer. So that's, in my view, that's risk assessment. That's what it does. But uh, you made a very interesting point, and and I would like to play the devil's advocate here when you say that it's it works in your favor to have a centralized technical authority or technical expertise because they would look at things more in totality and the technical standards that they have developed over a period of time are quite robust as against the local adaptations that are needed at, at the decentralized level, which tend to compromise uh, between safety and production and, and more or less always lean towards uh, production. Yeah. So my question, uh, Jilsa, to you is that one could also argue that in this kind of an arrangement, and I don't know if you want to cover it later on, and I'm fine by that, uh, the, the tension that comes in many, many cases is that technical expertise or technical authority could also be far removed from, from the realities of the, the operational context and the cultural context in which the business is operating. Uh, the the better, a better solution that might be more appropriate in that moment. So what is your view on that? I think that I should continue a little bit because I can then uh, provide more arguments to explain the final suggestion in terms of structure. One point that I'd like to emphasize, Nipping, that this whole idea of who in the structure should have the authority to grant a waiver to a technical requirement was an issue observed and, and addressed by, for example, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. And I think that this board, uh, the board uh, who investigated the accident of NASA Space Shuttle Columbia in, in 2003, and they concluded something very interesting and important, that the separation of authority uh, between what they called the owners of the technical requirements from the managers who, as they stated, uh, would be more sensitive to, to issues such as production costs and schedules. So this separation, according to this board, would be crucial for safety because structures define uh, the level of independence and the authority assigned to technical experts in decision-making process. And this, in turn, influence the power they have to influence on the final decisions. And, and if you compare this conclusion to the dynamics of a decentralized company, you're going to realize that a decentralized company does the opposite because a decentralized company accumulates all the authority in one person in the business unit level. So I think this is a very interesting point for us to understand what is behind this argument that I'm, I'm bringing here. I, I'm not saying here, Nipping, that a decentralized company cannot have safe outcomes. Of course, they can have. But this is a kind of arrangement that is more likely to experience a less than rigorous decision in some point in time at some part of the company when the decision maker faces a trade-off between production and safety. I think that's the, the whole idea. And I can give you an example. I, I, I experienced the situation, and I think that this example depicts what I'm trying to explain. 
uh, once uh, I was discussing with an integrity manager from a business area, a topic, a, a issue, and we, we had many safety concerns regarding the management strategy that this manager was trying to, to apply to handle the problem. And I had a group of other safety experts with me. We were in the, in the functional line, in the safety uh, structure that is outside the business area, okay? So it's a structure that provides this kind of separation that I'm talking about. And after many meetings and discussions, we realized that we, we wouldn't be able to achieve an agreement. We needed to escalate the problem. We made a report uh, explaining all the arguments we had, all the safety concerns regarding that strategy that was being proposed by that manager, and we, we escalated the problem. The final solution was a kind of a balance that took into account the arguments that we put in that report. So I think that this is the beauty of a structure that gets the safety experts and put them outside the business area. It's a kind of structure that provides independent checks and balance. And in, the, in this particular situation, there was something very significant for me. Uh, as, a, as I am passionate about understanding how organization works, I pay, I pay attention all the time to these this kinds of things. And uh, we had a colleague, technical expert, who attended all the meetings, discussed the problems with us, agreed with our conclusions. But in the end, this technical expert was within the business area, okay? And in the end, uh, this person comes to us and say, uh, I cannot sign this report. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry, but I cannot sign this report. And I totally under understood what was happening. But, but for me, it was an excellent example to describe what I'm trying to explain here. Absolutely. And we can think about many factors. We can think yeah, about, absolutely. come on, what kind of culture does this business area have that does not allow a person to raise a bad news or a dissenting view? We can think about that. We can think about the psychological aspects, influence on this final decision of this person. How would my manager think about this whole situation in which I signed this report. Uh, this person wants to be viewed as a person who is part of the team. So we put this person under a lot of pressure because of the structure. So uh, that's what I'm trying to, to, to explain here. So, uh, and I think that we cannot overlook anymore the way the structure affects our behavior and the way we, we make decisions in, in, the, in, in the companies. I think that's a good example. I think that now, Nipi, we can proceed to the third question because, okay, we agree that we need a more independent safety function, a more centralized one, but how to design the organization to achieve that? The first point is, what do I need? I need a kind of structure that, provide us with this separation of authority. We can think about that. And so I need a kind of structure that combines two forms of 
departmentalization, a functional one and a production one. So when, when we think about that, it comes to my, my mind a kind of matrix structure. Uh, a matrix structure is a kind of collaborative arrangement that can be adopted by decentralized companies organized in business units in order to provide a more centralized control of some critical functions such as safety. So a matrix can be can be an option. And, and all that I'm I will talk uh, from now on is is uh, described in this paper that we published in Safety Science. How do organizational structures uh, impact operational safety? The second paper, part two, explains in details what I'm going to say. But when we think about a matrix structure, there is a main aspect of this structure, which is employees have two lines of reporting in this kind of matrix structure. Usually an employee has two lines of uh, reporting, two reporting lines, one connected to the business unit manager and the other connected to the functional manager, in our case, the safety manager. But the, the, the way these lines will be arranged can make the whole difference. So what we suggest as a possible uh, structure to strengthen safety uh, is a structure in which, first of all, uh, the safety expert is embedded in the process facility in the business unit. And this is a very important aspect because we need people living the daily routine of the process facility connected to the reality of the process facility and with the ability to, uh, to identify potential uh, dangers and hazard scenarios. So that's the idea. This guy is connected to this business unit manager, but providing services to this manager. And this guy uh, answers not to this business unit manager, but to a safety manager who is outside the business area. So if we use that a typical uh, representation that we find in the we can find in the organizational charts with dotted lines and solid lines, which is a little bit confusing. But what I'm saying here is that the safety expert would be connected to the business unit manager through a dotted line uh, that depicts a provision of services but he would be connected by a solid line to the safety manager, meaning that he or she answers to the safety manager. So this safety manager is the one who selects this expert, who defines the goals to be pursued by this safety expert, who evaluates the performance of the safety expert, which will probably impact in the payment and bonus system of this guy, not the business unit manager. So this can make uh, the whole difference because then we can have a more independent safety function. And this person must have the authority to intervene in, uh, in order to avoid decisions that may compromise safety. And if there is any kind of disagreement, uh, then the, the issue can escalate using this functional life. So I, I think that this depicts the, the whole idea. 
And a final aspect, Nipping, uh, is the position occupied by the head of the safety function, because this safety function must go progressively all the way to the top of the organization. So the position occupied by the head of the safety function influences on the power and authority that this leader will have in the decision-making processes that occur at the top of the organization. Uh, so it's important to have a safety leader directly connected just below the CEO of the company with a voice that is equaling uh, to the voice of the business area leaders. So this also is an, another important characteristic of this uh, design that we are suggesting to strengthen safety. And then we can come to uh, the profile of the safety leader. And, and of course that this person must have strong non-technical skills such as leadership, ability to manage conflicts, the ability to communicate problems and so on. But this person also uh, must present a strong technical competence, a strong technical knowledge. We cannot talk about process safety with a leader that does not have this strong technical competence because this person needs to understand the problems that people below him or her will bring uh, to this position. And this person needs to communicate these problems with compelling technical arguments. And here, I think I can make a connection with one podcast that you have about soft skills and, and I think that in this, if I'm not mistaken, in this podcast, you talked about also the importance of technical knowledge. It's, it's the whole package. <laughs> we cannot just focus on one side and forget the other. So if you want to, to add more food for thought on this topic, I would appreciate a lot. It was such a fascinating way in which you described it, Dilsa. So in my mind, uh, uh, I see uh, what you're saying is that uh, you have a, a very critical role here for somebody to fulfill. So there's three things to it. One is that this person or, or this fun function has to be uh, embedded in the business as a supplier of a service. And the supply of that service is making sure that the, the business unit is technically sound, uh, process safety oriented. So any trade-off between safety and production is made with technical excellence. Now, this person is not accountable to the business unit. This person is answerable to somebody else who is who is somewhere else in the line. And that person then uh, could be his, his or her direct manager, then has the authority or, or the backing from the senior leadership to all the way up from the CEO of the company, right? So that's the second aspect. And the third aspect of what you're saying is that this person should have a holistic understanding, uh, both from a technical perspective, but also from a non-technical perspective. So he should be, apart from being a good communicator, that person should have a very sound understanding of process safety. I think they should, I think there's a third element to it, which is that person should have an appreciation of the business context, how the business operates and how the different stakeholders of the business, uh, what their expectations are. He or she may not necessarily have to, to be influenced by those decisions. Of course, that's not 
his role, but to be aware of the wider context of the business, you know, the regulatory context, the, the, the client and the customer context. So I think this person has to have a very good appreciation of the business unit in which he or she is supplying that service. That's the only thing I would say is. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Nipi. This is, this is not easy. This is something I think people need to develop over the time. So we Absolutely. need people with some characteristics and through this daily routine that they are living, through these experiences they are having, uh, then we can have an arrangement that we work in an intended way. But it, it takes time. I think we, we cannot have the illusion that we're going to redesign a safety function. You could imagine, okay, I, I agree with you. I will follow this recipe. It seems a recipe. And I will do this change in my major hazard company and everything is going to work well. No, people need uh, to, to get used to this new way of doing things. And, and it takes time. Sometimes it's, it's not easy. And I can see from my, my personal experience that every time there is a, a organizational restructure, a redesign, a change. People are out of their comfort zone. They are afraid about what is going on. What is my my whole here? What? How should I behave? So, after redesigning to to achieve this this, this structure, these characteristics, uh, it takes time for the whole package to to work. And and we need uh, people with this profile that we are talking about. The people who understands the, the, the business uh, and the business must be clear about what they want, what are the expectations in terms of process safety. This must be clear for the whole organization. And, and then I think we, we can proceed to, to a final question that I put here, Nipi, for this podcast. What can make this structure, this structure fail? And I think that one point is we need competent people with technical knowledge and also with uh, these soft skills we are talking about. We need time for this organizational uh, design or structure. Uh, to. We need time for us to learn how to work in this kind of structure. I, I think that is required. And there is another aspect that I'm always concerned about. We need a staff, a number of people in the safety uh, function that is able to manage the workload. Because if we have staff with a very few group of people, people will become overwhelmed by the workload and the whole structure will not work. And this is an important point because sometimes companies want to, I'm going to use a, a beautiful verb here, optimize the staff, okay? And, and by optimize, they, they just reduce the number of people in each department and they don't realize, oh, come on, we have some work process here and we need a, a certain amount of people, competent people to handle uh, the workload of this work process. If you don't have, if the structure is not well resourced, it won't work. 
and this is another organizational aspect that I think that people need to reflect on. Oh, I changed my design and, and the things are not working well. Okay, but what are the other aspects that must come together with this structure? Another point that I think it's important, and if you understand that interdisciplinarity is a main feature of process safety, we need to understand what types of specialties we need to put together in these departments in order for this whole structure to work. So specialties, the size, number of people, and the profile, the, the skills and technical competence of these people, of this structure, I think they are uh, aspects that we need to think about it if you want to succeed in this organizational now redesign. I, this is what comes to my mind. You know, what I'm thinking as you're speaking, I think that it was a fascinating discussion so far, but I, I just worry uh, that how most organizations see expertise these days. Expertise has become such a difficult thing in many organizations to, to understand the importance of expertise. You talked about specialities or, or special roles. It takes sometimes takes 20, 30 years to develop experts in a particular area. Forget about actually bring them in the room and creating synchronism between them. And that's that's another big aspect that, the, yes, you have disciplines of experts, but how do you bring them together and make it work? Because ultimately, that's where safety lies, isn't it? How do you bring people from different disciplines together and make it work for you? One of the challenges is that companies don't realize the importance of expertise these days in the way expertise is rewarded, nurtured, enhanced in organizations. I think we are moving away from that. And that's a very dangerous thing. Most organizations, the precedence is given to managers, people who can run the show rather than people who understand the context, who spend years trying to build that knowledge and experience. And I think I'm very worried about that, actually. Yeah, Nipi, I agree. And this is a concern I have, especially when we go through some periods of times where in which we have lots of excellent experts, for example, retiring and leaving the company, you know, this is a moment in time of the company that we need to, to think about it, how we are going to build that knowledge and expertise. And in fact, we need to think about that so much before this, this moment in which people is going to retire, people is going to receive uh, another big opportunity and will uh, go to another company. That happens all the time. So... Uh, the organization must be aware of this. And, and I think that, in my opinion, I think that we, we should have a kind of redundance in our organizations, not only for hardware and equipment. I have two pumps instead of one. I have two systems instead of one because I want reliability in my process. But we need to think about redundancy in people. Because if we have this kind of redundancy, we can have someone that we put together with a great expertise and they will have time uh, to train this, this person and, to, and this person will become in a near future an expert in that company. But if you don't 
have this kind of process. And, and I agree with you. I think that organizations nowadays, uh, they are not um, realizing the importance of having redundant people in the company and training people for allow these people to become experts in the near future because we are going to depend on this expertise. And, and this is something that I, I think that we, not, not all companies, some of them do it better than others, but I, I think that there is much room for improvement in this aspect that you are raising, definitely. But I think this goes back to precisely what you said in the beginning, that technical expertise or the nurturing of the expertise will come if the structure supports it. If you have uh, if you have somebody who reports to the CEO or, or the CEO himself or herself genuinely appreciates the importance of having expertise, then you will have expertise in the organization. But if that thinking does not exist at the top, then how do you then you know promote that idea and how do you nurture? Or, or, or develop that expertise. It's, it's again a very structural problem. Goes back to where you started off from, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you are talking and you are raising an aspect that I think it's fundamental: the leaders. Absolutely. If you if you if you think about all that we are discussing here, or oh, structures impact operational safety. So if the structure is uh, more centralized and independent from business pressure. This is good. Okay, but I need a leader who understands this message and uh, provides a, a structure that has this kind of characteristic because all that we are trying to achieve, it's a structure that um, allows uh, or promotes technical expertise in the decision-making processes. It's a structure that provides a deference to technical expertise. That's the whole idea. And if you don't have a leader who understands this message, we will never have a structure like that. The, the structure, design, the design of the organization, the establishment of a particular structure is an act of power of this leader. He has the power to do that. He has the power to create and change the culture of, of the organization, but he needs to understand that. And he needs to be willing to do a change, uh, to, to create a culture that is uh, it's more positive in terms of safety. And then we can think not only about structures, we can think about bonus systems, indicators, and so on. It's all in the hands of these leaders to do the changes that we need to achieve a better culture in terms of safety in our organization. So I think that you, you raised a very important point. We cannot make this whole discussion disconnected from, from the leaders. It won't work. Great. Is there anything you would like to say uh, at the end, Joseph? Yeah, I think there are some points here in, in my final message. I think that the first is we cannot overlook anymore the influence that structures have on the way we do things in the company. Uh, we need to be aware of that and we need to be aware of the dangers 
of a decentralized structure. But there is no one-fits-all solution. So our organizations must reflect on their own structures in order to discover what is not okay in terms of safety and what kinds of change can be done in the design to strengthen safety. And we cannot have the illusion that, okay, now I'm going to perform a huge organizational change and everything is going to work well. No, structure does not exist in isolation. There are other organizational aspects that must be taken into account for the whole package to work. And everything is in the hands of the leaders. Uh, the, the leaders need to establish the institutional arrangements that will create the culture that they, sh they are looking for. I think that's the final message. Just uh, one last question. If, what is the impact of doing a PhD? Because you have a practitioner's background all the way, and then you had the opportunity to do a PhD. How has this PhD changed your, your, your way of thinking? I think that this PhD has changed my worldview. <laughs> uh, I think that now uh, every time something happened, for example, in the organization, I, I try to understand the, the background, why we are acting or behaving like that. So I think that this kind of critical thinking was something that I, I really developed in, with the PhD. It's something that sometimes we you act in a certain manner, but you don't stop to think about what is leading you to act in that certain manner. And, and I think that the PhD uh, made me a more a person who reflects more about these things and try, and I try all the time to understand why are we behaving like that in our company? What are the arrangements that are producing this behavior? And so I, I think I became obsessed by what is the research question I need to answer <laughs> that better addresses the problem that I'm observing. And, and this is something that the PhD made with me, and I'm very grateful for all this opportunity I had. It was a gift, I think, in my life and in my, in my career. Great, great. Thank you very much for your time. What did you think? Actually, just after speaking with Jilsa, I wrote back to her, reflecting upon what my idea of safety function, of that safety function that she talks about, would mean to ensure technical integrity and process safety, and what that role of the central organization would seem to appear from the outside. A lot of it was just summarizing her own thoughts. So things like this central unit that should be capable of ensuring technical integrity and operational safety of the organization, in my view, should be resourced very well to ensure continuous monitoring and responding to decentralized business units requirements. So the key word here is resourced well. The other thing is that technically sound expertise is needed in all aspects of business operations within this central department or central unit. The key word here is having the knowledge and expertise. It's also very important that this central unit is familiar with the business context when overriding safety over production. 
because sometimes technical people lose the sensitive sensitivity to operational conditions especially when they are removed in time and space so the key word here is being sensitive it's also very important that the central unit is not influenced by commercial decisions a point jilsa makes very well and the key word here we are looking for is being independent another important thing is that this central unit because it's removed in time and space needs to be accessible when it's required when we need to make those difficult decisions and in the business units so the key word here is accessible and finally the most important thing is that it's actually able to prove its value to the business to the ceo to the board over a period of time the key word here is value adding so i think if you really want to make good operational decisions that can navigate between safety and technical excellence and production you need to have a centralized unit that can do all this for you i hope you enjoyed the session and if you're not the ceo or vice president of safety within your organization i would strongly suggest you to pass this podcast to your leaders and if you are the ceo i would encourage you to reflect upon jilsa's work and discuss with your board members because that's where safety really begins thank you for listening and i hope you have a great day thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast i hope the time you spent was worthwhile if the podcast has made you think slow down and reflect i have achieved my purpose please share it with others in your community that way the message goes far and wide i spend a lot of time thinking researching and producing meaningful content if there's a specific topic that you wish to know more about please let me know if i can i will make every attempt to create something that is meaningful and valuable to you if you have a topic that you would like to discuss with me please feel free to be in touch particularly if there's something you don't agree with disagreements are a lot of fun i wish to also remind you that all my podcasts related reference material and transcripts for each podcast is available on my website novelas.solutions you can also get in touch with me on the same website or through linkedin twitter or my personal website nepinanand.com thank you for listening